Hey everybody, welcome back to the Skip It podcast. My name's Lee and I'm joined here with John. Hello. And Ashwin. Hey guys. And today we're going to be speaking with you about episode 27 called The Last Chance. This episode aired in Australia on August 26th, 1968. It was directed by Eric Fullylove. The writers were Jay Bandaro, who wrote the screenplay, and Kreswick Jenkinson, who actually came up with his original story. This is one of the first episodes that we've had, at least in ages, that isn't written by Ross Napier, or he didn't have his hand in it. The stars of this episode are our regular cast of you know, the Hammonds. We've got Jerry, Skippy. We also have a few guests this week, and I'll get into them as we break down the episode. So if you guys are cool for me to kick off, we'll get Get straight into yeah. it. Go for yeah. it. Right. So this episode starts with Sonny and Skippy hugging. It's quite a nice warm opening as Sonny is leaving for a couple of days with Matt to do his exams. So we kind of get an idea here that he can't do everything through radio schooling, which makes sense because um, which kid wouldn't cheat if he was able to do it? <laughs> no one's watching him, uh, which I thought was interesting because basically they get rid of Sonny in this opening moment and we don't see him for the rest of the episode. Were either one of you surprised at this? I think Sonny would have loved to have been there given what happens in this episode. So this was, yeah, a cruel twist of fate. Yeah, it was very interesting. You know how they did it a few episodes ago? Was it the surf comp one? Yeah. Um, Sonny um, had to go to the aunt or whatever. So, yeah, they're definitely getting rid of him for a reason because I also it might have gotten too overcrowded because sort of Mark and him would be probably competing for the same part. That's an interesting point because you'd think that if it wasn't for Mark, this mm. would have been Sonny, but it just would yeah. have been a bit weird having Sonny negotiate all this, what we're about to get into because he's so young. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Mark, I guess, has a, it makes a little bit more sense. And also, Mark's older, so, you know, he's going to be a bit more excited by it. Yeah. So Mark reassures Skippy. He'll only be gone for a few days, and this is, of course, him referring to the fact Sonny's going to be gone. In the car, Sonny complains about going, and Matt also lets him know they're going to take good care of Skippy. So note that he won't miss his family. <laughs> He's only really worried about Skippy, no. um, which again shows how much this kangaroo means to him. Back at the ranger station, Mark calls to Skippy like a dog. He claps his hands so she knows what to do. And what she knows is coming, we assume, is that she's going to be launched through the air by an off-screen Satan <laughs> into his arms. Mm. Uh, he then chucks her just equally through the air into the car as uh, we see a man in the background pull up with a very odd accent. Now, I'm going to ask you, Ashwin, because we hear this guy. We'll reveal who he is in a moment, but we hear him quite a bit. Did this guy need subtitles? Am I just, I mean, as someone who has a lot of multicultural family, I'm, we used to a lot of accents, but I had no idea what accent yeah. this guy had. Yeah, it was like, a, was it a mix of different types of Eastern European? Mm. It, yeah. it sort of sounded Dutch to me. There's a lot of Dutch people in this show, you know. So yeah. I think they were going for a, as Ashwin was saying, a European director. Well, we'll get into him uh, in a little bit more detail soon. But what he does at this point is he tells Mark he's there to talk to Matt as he'd like to film a movie called Frosts of Summer, which is a very uh, ironic name, in the park. Mark is super excited at this news. He looks at the movie poster, which is stuck to the door of the car for some reason. <laughs> I've never seen that before. And when this happens, we see a man in the back seat lean forward with a stern and unimpressed face. And ominous music plays to mm -hmm. reinforce that this guy is setting up, being set up to be sort of the antagonist. After the credits, we open on a man giving an impassioned speech that this land is as much a part of him as his own life. And we find out, of course, this is Byron, the actor. John, did this guy think he was reciting Shakespeare? Because he was saying this very dramatically. Oh, yes. To give you a picture, he was a classical 
old school actor. And I sort of, this is where this part of this episode definitely starts to become autobiographical for the Skippy show because, you know, because this is obviously a send up of them making a show and TV and the industry and all of that. And, um, you know, it's sort of funny because, you know, you see this prestigious actor and he's got a a wig on immediately as well. Like that's the first thing you notice. Um, So he's very vain uh, in that sense. But yeah, no, he, he was someone you'd definitely see in a Shakespeare play and that poster as well. <laughs> like, I don't know what any production companies drive around with just like a poster stuck. And it had his name like on it as well, like bigger than the uh, name of the movie. The other thing that was getting me with this uh, with this moment is because he has that English accent. It seemed like a very refined accent. I was getting at Dr. Stark triggers. It's kind of like a go-to villain voice for the show. Yeah, if you can enunciate your words very clearly, you're probably a villain. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so in this scene, we dolly back and we see he's standing before a large film crew. So a little bit of trivia, many of the crew actually appear on camera. And when I say the crew, I mean the Skippy crew themselves. So the parallels you were talking about, John, were a bit mm. more metaphorical, but in this case, the it literally was the crew. <laughs> yes, yeah, very much so. And uh, the most predominant roles were those of the assistant director, which is David Copping, who is the only crew member to also receive a guest cast credit. And David Copping, he plays the character Andy. And as an actor, he was most prevalent in the 70s and the 80s. He was in a movie I actually loved from the 90s, or at least I did back when I was 14, which was probably the last time I actually saw this, which starred Christopher Lambert called Fortress. Do you remember that movie? Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, no. oh. It, it's uh, 90, is it like 90. Labyrinth? I'm, feeling, I'm getting Labyrinth vibes. <laughs> no, no, it was nothing, nothing like Labyrinth. No, it had the Highlander in it. It had Christopher Lambert. So. Yes. Okay. So the director who I've mentioned before, his name is Max. He comes forward and tells the actor, who we now find out is named Byron, that he said the wrong line. And this starts a creative dispute suggesting that Byron doesn't care about making mistakes. They can fix it in the cutting room. Max says it's important they get it right, but the essence of the scene is that it's actually very important for both of them, just for different reasons. So I'll get into Byron Creswell, which is the full character's name. He was played by Alexander Archdale. He actually had a really big career across the 1930s to the 1980s. He was most known for The Killing of Angel Street, which was an 80s movie, The Road, which was another 60s movie, and His Majesty O'Keefe, which was a 1950s movie. So getting back to those parallels again, John, this Mm. was him playing himself self almost because he had that old career where he was known for things that he probably wouldn't have been anymore no no he was definitely that actor but i also wanted to sort of bring up there might be parallels between him and ed Devereux, like as yeah. an actor we'll get to like to it later but i'm just gonna say there's hints there that i it almost feels like ed Devereux has had these same conflicting feelings maybe i, I was surprised he didn't even write the script as well so yeah, yeah. well uh, the other actor i'll just point out is Alan Scott, who plays the director, Max, he only had two roles, this one here and one in a movie called Riptide. I actually think either he didn't care about it anymore or else it was just hard for him to get roles, particularly in English, because he was just very hard to understand. <laughs> you know, that's how, that's the cutthroat nature of it. <laughs> it is. I can't, can't understand you? No. Yeah. So Matt then arrives in the car with Mark parking essentially right on their set. When they get out, Matt slams the door and Mark tells him to keep it down. Otherwise, Toupe Tom will lose his mind. 
And the production manager, so our second AD, he comes over and tells Matt to move his car. And after he moves off, Matt tells Mark not to call him Toupe Tom. Mark says that everyone else calls him Matt, but Matt says that that's fine for them, but he's not to do it. And dutiful son Mark agrees. So this is giving our first hint that Matt is actually a fan of this actor, Byron, because he's sticking up for him and doesn't want him being made fun of. I actually didn't pick that up. I thought just Matt is such a preachy, moralistic bore. Um, <laughs> so I He's telling him off again because he loves to tell people off, but yeah, you picked up that clue a bit earlier. No, look, to be honest, I didn't. It was only upon reflection that I realized that that was the first clue. I was exactly the same as you, Ashman. I just thought he was just reprimanding his son for being not very nice. Yeah, yeah. like uh, being rude or whatever. But yeah, no, you definitely can see it all linking up now, like the, the reason why he's so sensitive about it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we get this other grumpy crew member come over and order Matt to get that hunk of junk out of there. And Matt very compliantly agrees. So I'm curious, Ashwin, after telling Mark not to be disrespectful, do you think that Matt just rolled over on being talked to like that? Yeah, well, he did pour, He did staunch him out for a few seconds. Like, he didn't immediately get back into the guy. He gave him a bit of a look, but he decided it's not worth going ahead with because Matt occasionally sort of realizes that some... He picks his battles. Some battles aren't worth fighting. And also, there's always a couple there's a couple of occasions throughout the whole series where the department, this, the mysterious department, tells him to just get off and do something. So this could yeah. have been a case where the department just told him to play nice with his crew. So yeah. he was being more patient than he normally would be. Yes, and yeah. there is actually a line later on where he does say that he, and we'll get to it obviously when it mm. comes up, but where he does acknowledge the fact that he's been told to do whatever he needs to make their filming smooth as possible. Yeah. So Mark then comes over and asks this grumpy crew member what the director might want him to do, and he tells him to just stay out of his way. It's <laughs> probably what he's going to want. <laughs> we then focus back on the main unit with Max and Byron, and they're talking about the next scene. They get interrupted, and Byron asks, Who is that man? And Max tell him, look, that's our second unit AD. He's been there the whole time. <laughs> and Byron says to Max to instruct him not to interrupt. So, John, I'm curious from you, actually, on this. Is Byron the old man Aussie equivalent of Christian Bale going off at the DP on the set of Terminator Salvation? Because that's a very diva. <laughs> yes, yeah, definitely very diva. Well, the pro- his problem is he doesn't get any respect, obviously. So he's uh, trying to get it. But also the arrogance of him not knowing that person and being like totally like, oh, that is very Hollywood, you know. Yeah, and uh, to even talk to him directly. That he had yes, to ask you yeah. directly to do it. Like, that is on. That is a very uh, Hollywood set type thing to do. Uh, so there's a lot of egos at play here. And this yeah. is where we see Byron's ego just go spaz and just go, you know, go off. So, And also, um, just before, you're not liking the crew much because that guy was super rude to Matt and super rude to Mark as well. So they're giving you that off vibe. It's like a mix of this entitlement and then from Byron, like just constant indignance, like just... (laughs) Not neither one of these things are particularly admirable traits. But after this, we cut to a car returning to the ranch and it's honking. And Jerry poshly says to Matt, so he's now getting in on this, that his chauffeur is there. And Mark says he can't wait for the picture to be finished. So when Matt hears this, he says he thought it would be fun for him. And that's when Mark says it's deadly. And he just stands around like a stunned mullet, which is a classic Aussie phrase for those who are not Australian who are listening to us. That's something that probably an older, I don't th- probably think young people say it anymore, but, you know, like a stunned mullet is definitely very like ochre. And um, he says it's okay for the actors, but boring for everyone else. And Matt says that they can't all be Clark Gables, 
which is such a classic dad response. (laughs) And he says that, says he might like some company then and to take Skippy with him. Mark agrees because at least then he'll have someone to talk to. Lee, just before you go on, when um, Matt said we can't all be Clark Gables, Mark replies with, who's Clark Gable? And at that moment, I was thinking, how old must Clark Gable be? For him to have been old in 1967, because I didn't even know exactly what year he was, but that's just a good reminder of how ancient Clark Gable is. Yeah, he does say that. Well, I mean, Clark Gable was from the 30s and 40s. I mean, he was Gone with the Wind, most famously, was 1939. It would have been at least 30 years, probably, but um, that, that, that question does come up very soon. Um, as he's leaving the kitchen table, Jerry, continuing in his posh voice, says how the world is waiting for the return of romantic lead Byron Creswell on the silver screen. So that, again, reinforces that this is an actor who is, I mean, I don't know if you'd say has been, but pretty close to it. Mm. Um, and when that happens, Mark laments like, oh, brother, and walks off. So he's not really a fan of all this, that whole attitude of we're so superior. Well, yeah, and and it is, um, you know, that 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 is the funny thing about making movies is it is a lot of hurry up and wait, and um, yeah, pretty much there is very few and far between uh, stuff happening, you know. So it's sort of an interesting thing, and you know, for Mark, it's just basically become work now. So he he just sort of over it. Yeah, we're waiting for everyone to do all the setups, the lighting rigs, then the discussions, the the blocking, all that. Yeah, and, it's, it's and having to work with Byron, obviously, you know, that's <laughs> yeah. always tough. So yeah, yeah. Well, outside, Matt is talking to the chauffeur and asks how long it takes to make a film, and the answer he gives is it's about twelve to thirteen weeks. That's when Mark comes to the car. He claps his hands again. This is the second time he's done this. He catches another launched Skippy. He gets in the car. And as you said before, Ashwin, this is when he turns and asks Matt, who's Clark Gable, which makes Matt feel his age. And this is the first cue we get now of the wah, wah, wah. <laughs> Lee, I just had a false memory, assuming that that reply, who's Clark Gable, had it happened at the same time. But it actually was split apart. This is why you can never trust your memory. Never trust me to tell you what I did last night. Because <laughs> I will no. no, that's okay. Look, I've taken a lot of notes. So that's the only reason I remember, Ashman. Don't feel yeah. bad. We're now on the set and Byron is overacting as usual. And Max has to come and tell him to put more feeling into it. And the scene, just to sort of paint the picture, it's Byron talking to his dog, who is named Blackie. And it is a white dog. So Byron, after telling Max... First of all, he tells him how he hates this role. He then says he hates animals. He especially hates his dog counterpart and that he has a problem with a white dog being named Blackie. So he says it should have been named Whitey. Now, I'm going to go to you, Ashwin, because we've done stuff before on this on stage. Let me ask you, is this racism that he thinks it should be called Whitey because it's a white dog? Or is he right in calling out cultural appropriation? <laughs> I went there with the race angle first. That this guy needs to have a white dog, white name, white everything. But this is the classic Aussie irony. Blackie's called Whitey. Big guys are called Little. Little guys are called Beast or whatever. Why yeah. doesn't he get Aussie irony? He's supposed to be part of this country, a refined, tough version of this country. I just found it weird he didn't get that. And the director didn't defend that concept of Aussie irony either. So it was just uh, it was painful to watch that. Yeah, no, he didn't bother at all because he just sort of said, oh, it will fix it. It was a mistaken scripting. And it's like, mm. what, you can't, like, erase, like, Blackie to Whitey? Like, a, like it's not that hard. But, um, yeah, anyway, like, it just seems like they're getting stuck on the more, most smallest, my, like, details and stuff. And then you notice how um, there's a bit of back and forth because we first, when we first sort of hear 
Byron, he's like, oh, don't worry about it. Yeah, fix um, it in post. We'll fix it in post. And then the director sort of says, oh, don't worry about it at the end of this. Yeah. Like, pretty much any argument ends with uh, don't worry about it, which is, again, you know, that's probably a pretty Hollywood thing to do. Yeah, yeah but you're right. when he did say that, I actually did stop worrying about it. But that is actually <laughs> quite reassuring. Very that's convincing. why he's the director. Yeah. So persuasive. Yeah. Um, so you're right. Yeah, they continue to argue about this, and Byron takes a moment to explain again how important this movie is to his career and that it's his last chance, and he can't afford for it or him to fail. So the stakes are being set up here. Mark then arrives with Skippy as the crew roll again, and we see a lot of behind the scenes of the production, and they go again on the previous scene. Byron comes up and says how happy he is. Blackie is still alive. And he claps his hands. And here is where the setup of Skippy being launched when Mark claps his hand is called back. As Skippy hops into the shot and jumps into Byron's arms. And he really looks like he's struggling to hold this kangaroo. (laughs) And then we get this musical wah-wah-wah sting again. And that's the end of Act 1. So, John, what did you think of this setup? Did you see it coming? And did you think it worked well? Yes. Well, like, I think after that second clap where um, Mark... And I'll just say this. Mark got really good at, like, catching kangaroos. Like, I think he had a lot of practice. But, you know, I guess you're on a Skippy show. You're going to, you know, be doing that, like, daily every day. So, yeah, no, it it was um, very interesting seeing his skill at um, kangaroo catching. We should um, give him props because it would be hard to catch a kangaroo that's yeah. been catapulted through the air from... <laughs> well, pretty much thrown from one person to another, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so Act 2 then opens up with Mark, Jerry and Matt at the breakfast table and they can't believe the story Mark has just told them about the day before. He explains then that Max has taken a lot of time taking pictures and filming Skippy and they don't seem to understand why at that point. And then the phone rings. Matt has a chat with Lovejoy, who's on the phone with him, who is asking who owns Skippy and if she can be part of the movie. Matt then says he's been instructed to give them all the help they can and agrees. So that's really that department comes in again. So back at the table, Mark is making fun of Byron again and Matt finishing the call comes over and this time he's pretty annoyed. He reprimands Mark for being unkind And then this is the moment when he says he was a great star, a great star. And when they do this, they really cut to another angle on his face. He's brightly backlit. Like, this is a powerful recollection. He's really fanboying about this guy. So I'm curious to know. I mean, I think I think um, I was going to ask you, Ashwin, but John, it sounds like you want to say. Oh, no, no, no. I'll go. Ashwin, go first. Sorry. I was just laughing because I'm just remembering his face. I wish I was that happy sometimes. Yeah. It was like he'd just taken an ecstasy pill and he just was just so (laughs) incredibly excited. I mean, from what we've seen so far of Byron's acting, do you think it warranted this kind of, like, worship from Matt? No, I just he's such a terrible over-the-top actor. But maybe that's how acting was in the 30s. You know, there was a period where film switched from theatre to cinema, and the theatre actors were so dramatic and they mm. just... Uh, the way they fell and their facial. So maybe he's from that old theatre vaudeville kind of style, uh, over-the-top acting style. But, yeah... Yeah, it was yeah. interesting to see Matt fanboy. Because the other one Matt fanboyed over was uh, Mr. Trumbull or whatever, that old mm. Richard who walked around. So there are some occasional 30s icons that make their way to this national park for some reason at the twilight of their career. And Matt has to remind everyone that they were somebody one. Uh, so, yeah, it's a bit of a theme for the show. Yeah, and John, this is where you were saying there's a parallel between possibly Ed Devereaux. Yes, yeah. Well, this is where I sort of, seeing him wistfully, like, look up into the sky and go, a great star, 
a great star. Like, I was just like, are you talking about yourself there? <laughs> like, so, uh, so after this, Mark apologizes and Matt explains that Skippy has been offered a part. And this is after Jerry, by the way, assumes that the new part will be given to him. So he's still making jokes about all this. So we're now back on the set and there are three crew members grooming Skippy while Byron looks on and complains again to Max about how insane it is so many animals are being involved and he's annoyed that his role is being demoted to what he says is a supporting actor. <laughs> Max says it's fine and they start the next scene. So again, he just dismisses it. It's fine. It's It'll all work scene. out. It'll all work yeah. out. <laughs> yeah. uh, Byron walks over and sees a snake who actually looked pretty riled up. That snake was like writhing around on that branch. Yeah. Like they stuck it on there and he was not happy to be on that branch. And then Skippy on cue leaps in and ninja kicks the snake who <laughs> slithers off and saves Byron. So again, the parallels. This is essentially them putting into this fake movie, this fictional movie, what happens in a Skippy episode. So uh, they cut. And Max says how great the scene was, but Byron is still not happy and he storms off. This is when another crew member, who we find out the name of this crew member is Hogwell, smiles wickedly and like looks really evil. And he approaches Byron, who is now sitting in his chair having a tea. And he asks him, what's it worth? And he plays on Byron's fears by being you know, second to Skippy and says that if he has a few dollars to throw around, is his exact line, Hogwell can get rid of the kangaroo. So I'll just quickly let you know, Hogwell, he's played by actor Lex Mitchell. He had a pretty decent career across the 60s and 70s, mostly for TV. He was known for Homicide from 1964, also a movie called Stone from 1974, and The Evil Touch, which was another 70s movie. Byron then contemplates Hogwell's proposal as we cut to Mark giving Skippy a cup of tea. Now, while Skippy is looking away, Hogwell comes over and he puts another cup of tea down and then puts some tablets in it. And while he's not looking, though, this is where we get into the magic world of madness from Skippy. While Hogwell is looking the other way, Skippy does the old switcheroo and he swaps the cups so that when Hogwell drinks what he thinks is the normal one, he's actually drinking the drug tea. And then yeah. later on, we cut to Mark coming over and he sees Hogwell completely unconscious on the floor. Now, John, we've talked about this quite a few times before. Switching has happened again. These writers, even if it's not the regular writers, they are obsessed with the plot device of switching. Well, and, and I just sort of was going, what, what um, did uh, Princess Bride use this as inspiration or something? Because well, going back to like the court jester with Danny Kay and the pestle with, oh, the, pestle with the brew that is yeah, true. Like... Yeah, it sort of, it wasn't it hilarious because my first logical thing, and I don't know if you guys brought it up and you I probably all did, was like, why bring another cup of tea? Yeah. <laughs> just put yeah, it in the fucking tea story. If before you poison people, you got to do a risk assessment and yeah. surely a second cup of tea is a risk to yourself it's a 50 percent chance that you could possibly drink that tea yeah so that, would, that yeah. was the first giveaway where it was like oh, okay we're dealing with idiots here <laughs> and that did make the show for me this is where it's all been leading to is Skippy doing the old switcheroo and you've got the little uh, hands picking up the tea and moving them around. Like, it is really, really great. I just realised yeah. we missed an obvious pun there with the old switcheroo. No. <laughs> yeah, absolutely madness. Also, the number that animals can count to, I think chimpanzees can count to eight or 12. Maybe she, he just had to bring enough mugs 
to overwhelm Skippy's quantitative brain. And it's probably more than two, maybe like four. Maybe if he like uh, he sort of uh, had ten mugs and five. <laughs> like got the drugs in it but also yeah. i was like oh no like is is this like another hollywood cliche where they basically like pill people straight away like that's yeah. how that's how they deal with their problems is just roofie them like you know yeah. uh, anyway so back at the ranger station now byron is complaining again this time to matt directly and he's pretending in this situation to be an animal lover and he doesn't think it's good for Skippy to be in the film because it's cruel which is also probably another comment on what people were saying about Skippy mm. particularly that episode 4 that we've, we've talked about before <laughs> yes. so Matt doesn't quite understand as they begged him to let Skippy be in the movie and Byron repeats how he gets a little bit more earnest this time and he repeats how this is his last chance to get his career back he can't afford to fail and that's when Matt tells him directly he's a big fan and he'll be fine and Byron, again, getting a bit more earnest, says, look, he's going to be stood up by the kangaroo, which makes Matt say he understands and he's going to think about what he can do. Then Byron makes his fatal error, bribery. He says he owns part of the film, basically that he's got points in it. And if Matt takes Skippy out, he'll share the profits. Matt is not happy to hear this. He stands up. He's very serious. And he says he wishes Byron hadn't said that. And his demeanor is enough. No more words needs to be said. Byron apologizes immediately and leaves. So he's got a bit of class in this moment. Like he recognized it. Matt sits back down. He looks fairly despondent like his hero has just fallen. It's that whole cliche about never meet your heroes. Yes. So we leave him on that. Mark and Matt then... We see them talking about things, and presumably it's the next day, where Matt gives Mark an analogy, basically so that he can think about things from Byron's side. So he's clearly been thinking about this overnight. And what he says is, if someone came in to the park who was better than Matt at his job, and then they replaced Matt, how would Mark feel? And he sort of leaves Mark to think about this analogy, because it's essentially saying, you know, think about it from Byron's point of view. Is Skippy getting more attention? How would you Mm. feel if that happened to you? Yeah, We're back on the set. Hogwell is awake again from his drug-induced coma, and he approaches Byron, and he says, today's the day. Tomorrow, he'll be the star. And Byron decides at this point to back out of their deal. And that's when Hogwell becomes even more evil, essentially threatening him not to. He doesn't directly threaten him, but it's insinuated that he better not back out of this deal. Because clearly, they've never told us what amount he paid, but I'm sure it was enough for this rich actor to try to get what he wants. So Hogwell is then called back to the set to check if the bridge is okay, which is in the next scene. Uh, Like, is it strong enough? And I'll just make this scene as well. The bridge is suspended over water. It kind of looks like that one in Temple of Doom, that Indy Mm. cut that drops all the, like, Kali worshippers into the alligator infested (laughs) river. It's just not that high. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So probably maybe a foot off the water, off the river or something. Yes. Um, We do learn, though, why it's still a danger for him, which we'll get to soon. But um, Hogwell comes over. He says, yeah, that's strong enough. And then he sends the others away to go fix the set elsewhere. And then we see him bend over and start to rip the planks up from the bridge, just two or three of them. And then he lays them loosely back down. And what he doesn't know is that Mark is in the distance watching all of this. Meanwhile, Max is discussing the next scene with Byron, who's not happy about being told about it. As he says, he's already read the script. So Ashwin, again, if you were literally talking, if you were the director, and you're talking to an actor about the scene, and the actor's response is, I don't need to hear about this. I've already read the script. What is your reaction going to be? Well, I just think, because there's different approaches to acting, you know, some people, like, this reminds me of, who was it, the modern, uh, Yakin Phoenix, you know, he just goes, yeah. If he just goes fully, fully into the character. He just becomes a madman for three years when he's filming a character. I was like, 
maybe Creswell is some kind of brilliant genius method actor and we're just not seeing it. Uh, he just knows better than anyone, but more than likely, yeah, he's just, he just irritates me. He irritated me, but then when um, Hogwell came along and was even more annoying than Creswell. Yeah, he sort of became the proper villain, didn't he? Because yeah. he was sort of going to get Skippy no matter what, really. Yeah, yeah. Creswell became a bit of a pitiable character. Yes, once that and... Happened. Yeah, yeah, with the bribery and then him back. Yeah, absolutely. He definitely, you felt sorry for him and more than angry uh, at yeah. this point. It yeah. wasn't anything turn. You're right, how you started to feel a bit more sympathy because you realise he's desperate. Like he said, mm. it's his last chance. It was his, it was his career. So, we all um, it's getting shunted aside as we get older, you know, opportunities falling. And so I think part of us can all connect with the older, the ageism that Creswell's yeah. through. So, yeah, maybe that adds to the sympathy. Yeah. Well, and also being shown up, he, he's, you know, shown up by a kangaroo, you know, it seems, yeah. it's ridiculous, isn't it? So yeah. for, a, for a classical actor that can, you know, do all of this stuff, it's a little bit demeaning, I think. that's oh, Well, that's what I sort of got out of his gist from it. Yeah. And on that Matt's analogy that he gave earlier, that look, what if, how would you feel if someone came to the National Park, you bought them and they did better than me at the job? Really, the correct analogy would be, <laughs> How would you feel if a wild animal was made National Park Ranger and did a better job than I did at managing the National Park? <laughs> that's the thing. Like, it didn't really make sense because, Matt, technically that's probably what would happen in real life. If someone was better at your job, they would probably take you, you know, um, and you'd have to find a new job. That's the way life works for humans, Matt, not for animals. Sorry, yeah, boy. and the thing, we know that Skippy could easily run uh, the National Park oh, by yeah, herself. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so back in the scene, um, they're about to begin the rehearsal. Byron checks with Max that the bridge is safe. And this is where we really get the stakes because he says he can't swim. Max decides to then readjust the scene, saying that perhaps instead of Skippy leading him over the bridge, she leads him there. He then crosses the bridge and then calls across to Skippy. That's actually a terrible idea for a scene, but Byron believes that he's capable of crossing a bridge by himself, says it a bit sarcastically, and so he's fine with that. Meanwhile, Hogwell is seen by the end of the bridge. You know, he's obviously tampered it, so now he's watching to see what happens, but he's assuming that Skippy's going to cross, but in fact, Hogwell now crosses first. Matt, we also see at this point, has been led onto the set. So we're kind of building this scene. We're building tension as Byron gets closer to the planks that Hogwell has pulled. Hogwell then comes around, and this is when he sees that it's not Skippy, but Byron who's crossing, and he sort of panics, but it's too late. Byron hits the trap, and the whole bridge falls apart, and he crashes into the water. It's not like he just fell through the planks. The whole thing falls apart. Mark seizes his opportunity to rip his shirt off straight away to help <laughs> <laughs> but Skippy literally springs into action. She jumps into the water to save Byron. Mark calls out to Byron to hold on to Skippy as she'll bring him in. And then Mark turns and sees Hogwell and he calls out that he knows he's the one who loosened those boards and he tried to kill Byron. He runs off. And I didn't do anything about it. I had it cleared 20 minutes before this all happened. True. That's exactly true. We did nothing. He's watched. And so he's also now alerted Hogwell to the fact that the jig is up, that he's onto his scheme. And so he bolts. And Matt, though, this is when Matt immediately gets into his action man hero state. He gives chase. And we see Hogwell reaches the station wagon with Matt pretty close behind. He jumps into the station wagon. Matt 
rips Hogwell out of the car. Hogwell shoves Matt over and dives on him, and they wrestle for a bit. And Matt, does, this was I love this. Uh, this made me laugh so hard. Matt does the best '60s choreographed fight move, which is give him the judo chop. I don't know if you saw like <laughs> yeah, he did do the I just remember in um Get Smart they would do it all the time. Yeah, and then Austin Powers used to always do that as well. And um, well, I think James Bond does it a few times. Yeah. And then he pins him down and the crew catches up to them. And, you know, Hogwell saying it's not his fault. He points to Byron saying that it's his fault. But Byron immediately owns up and says, look, I did pay him to get Skippy out of the movie, but I insisted she wasn't to be harmed. And so it kind of, again, gives Matt what he's been looking for, which is a reason to think Byron isn't the letdown that he started to think he might have been. But he uses a really stern voice, maybe the most stern I've ever heard him, when he warns Hogwell that he better not catch him around here again. And which is interesting because last episode, someone tried to shoot his son and he said, I hope you can come back for an internship next summer. Um, what was that? I did Stay think in. that you don't make fun of my childhood hero, but you anyway. should. Um, he has a job. Yeah, it was weird. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and also on that scene, I think Skippy jumped in so quickly to save this random stranger she didn't know. But you guys remember in episode three when it was it Clancy got a shoe stuck in a rock and the tide started rising, and mm. Skippy just sat by the water watching for. Yeah, she didn't do anything. Yeah, like, it's very inconsistent when Skippy does her water stuff. One thing I'll say is that she can do the flipper rescue as well as rescue people from snakes on land. So, who's the better, who's the better animal? Um, So we now get to the final scene where Max and Byron arrive at the ranger station and they pretty much storm into Matt's office and they demand to know why Skippy has been withdrawn from the picture. And Byron has now decided Skippy should be part of it, clearly. But according to Matt, Skippy was the one who withdrew. She just completely lost interest. And Matt reassures Byron that this wasn't for his benefit, but that once the movie is out, they'll be sure to watch it. And Byron goes over to Skippy, pats her, Really nice. He's clearly befriended Skippy now, and we fade out on that shot. So a nice, happy episode. Yeah. Um, yeah. I thought this was a pretty interesting episode. I think I liked the fact that apart from, you know, the one switcheroo scene, we hadn't seen anything like this before on the show. And being a film fan, I like stories about making movies. So from a personal perspective, this did land really well for me. I just thought it was an enjoyable episode from start to finish. And I'm going to give it four gum leaves. Oh, Lee, that's pretty high for you. Okay. Yeah. Well, what about you, John? What did you? How did you rate uh, this one? Yeah, no, I really liked it too. Um, and same with you. I love the autobiographical feel of it because it did feel like they're sort of sending up Skippy and themselves a bit. I have to say, it was sort of just like all worth it for the uh, the tea pill switching that resonated with me. I feel like that's going to stay with me forever. I'll be able to tell that story um, to people and. You know, I think they will be impressed. Like, it was just great comic timing with the whole little thing and how the guy just, like, next shot, he's just passed out on the ground. So that shot uh, impressed me. So I'm going to definitely give it, I'm going to go with four and a half gum trees, uh, gum leaves, gum trees. I'll I'll go with four and a half gum leaves for me. And yeah. Well, a couple of high marks so far, Ash, but no pressure. But how did you rate this one? Yeah, I similar to you, I, I like the variety of the show. Lots of characters. Sometimes we have quite lonely episodes where there's just one or just the family. And so this felt like we were inviting guests around for a party for an episode. So I enjoyed that festivity of the whole episode. A great villain because we've had stark kind of serious cartoonish villains. We've had genuine criminals who were just dangerous and threatening. This villain 
Hogwell was just uh, dead shit. He had the great dead shit vibe. He was a more pedestrian was... villain, wasn't he? Yeah, but it was good to see a dead shit who wasn't going to kill you, but wasn't cartoonish. He's just an unlikable guy. So I thought they did a good job with him. Good variety of the show. So I'm going to give it four gum leaves for me. Boom. Well, all of us in the fours. Ah. That's great. Recommended episode, I think. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely uh, essential viewing for Skippy uh, enthusiasts for this one. Oh, just 60s TV shows in general, I think. Yes, yeah, yeah. Just as a good example of 60s television. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, will the next episode live up to it? John, what are we going to see next week? Okay, so we are up to episode 28. No trespasses. Skippy stumbles upon a secret boxing training camp illegally set up in the Waratah National Park. A young boxer, Rocky Miller, takes a forbidden joyride in the chopper with Jerry and a forced landing has surprised results. Guest stars Jimmy Carruthers and Chips Rafferty. Oh, there you go. They are some very well-known Australian actors from the day. This is nice. So we're going to see maybe a, a Rocky story mixed with a fight club. Oh, this will be down your alley, uh, Lee, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I didn't even think about that. Well, join us next week for that episode. Until then, have a great one. I'm Lee, and with me has been John. Thank you. And Ashwin. Thanks, guys. See you next week. Skip, 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 skip,